0: Be this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and you can find that text in your bulletin. You can also find though a handout in your bulletin, an insert if you prefer. Um it's, it's written by a man named Aaron Fleming, uh, who's a physicist. I believe he's a physicist, but this this is his advice on planning your funeral. It's his advice on planning your funeral. I don't read this far as we get started. From Aaron Fleming. You want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And at one point, you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell him that all those photo, photons that ever bounced off your face, all the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, that those photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much of all of our energy is given off as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs, as he says it. And he will tell them that the warmth that flowed through you in life is still here, still part of all that we are, even as we who mourn continue the heat of our own lives. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith, Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know your energy is still around. According to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone You're just less orderly. Amen. What I want to do this morning is to ask the question, would you rather have me do your funeral, or would you rather have a physicist do your funeral? Or, To put it another way, do we live in a world in which stones are rolled away and the dead are raised to life? Or do we live in a world in which once you die, you're you're sealed in a tomb by a stone that's never going to be rolled away, where you'll just lay and deteriorate until all of your energy has been absorbed back into the rest of the universe? That's the question this morning. Do we live in a universe in which stones are rolled away or not? And to get at that, we're going to look at Mark Chapter 15. So, if you'll look with me, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, printed there in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And they were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that, um, pray that you would draw near to us right now, uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe that he is risen. And Father, as we see that, would you cause us to grab hold of that uh, and see our very lives transformed by it? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's where I want us to start. I want us to think for a minute um, about what it means, what it, <clears throat> excuse me, what it means for our lives if Aaron Fleming is right. What if it is better to have a physicist do your funeral? What if we live in a universe in which no stone has ever been rolled away and no stone will ever be rolled away because the dead are not raised? The philosopher Bertrand Russell embraced a no-stones-rolled-away view of the world. Listen to what he said. This is actually on the front of your bulletin, the very first quote there. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcomes of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Bertram Russell says, embrace despair. We're here for no reason. Nothing you're gonna, that you do is going to last. You are not going to last. No stones are getting rolled away, so just go ahead and embrace despair. Now some of us say, I don't, that doesn't sound great, um, I don't know if I want to go that route, I don't know if I want to embrace despair quite yet, but if this is all that there is, then I'm certainly going to make the most of every breath I take before I get out of here. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry before I die. Now we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, and and the author of Ecclesiastes knew a thing or two about this sort of outlook on life. He tried it. He pursued pleasure. He drank his fill of wine. He built houses and vineyards and gardens and parks. He bought slaves. He filled his house with possessions and silver and gold. He had concubines. He had singers. He had everything he could want. And he winds up saying, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Uh, You've heard me tell before, I know you've heard the story of of, of Tom Brady after he won the third Super Bowl. And he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, man, it's got to be more than this. Then when asked what he thought that something more might be, he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. But we hear those stories and we all think, "Wow, well, yeah, but it's going to be different for me. It's going to be different for me when I become popular, when I get enough likes, when I go to college, when I start my career, when I get my dream house, when I upgrade my car, when I upgrade my house, when I upgrade my spouse, then, then everything is going to be okay. And still that refrain, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. In the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt, which was hauntingly covered by Johnny Cash, he covered this after his wife had died and while he was facing his own death, and and he sings this, everybody you know goes away in the end. And then he says, and you can have it all, my empire of dirt. You can have it. You can have it. My empire of dirt. I heard Steve Brown say one time that if the eighth year is to write and death is it, then your tombstone has two dates on it with a dash in between signifying nothing. Nothing. It's just meaninglessness sandwiched between two dates. See, if, if no stones are rolled away, you can embrace despair, you can pursue pleasure, you can be the king, or you can wind up on death row but what does it really matter you're just a dash between two dates but what if Bertrand Russell and Aaron Fleming are wrong what if stones really are rolled away what if someone died they really died and then they came back to life what if Jesus really did die and then rise again on the third day that would change everything wouldn't it Mark tells us here in his account that Jesus really did die. A Roman centurion in verse 45, who would have seen a few men crucified, he knew what this was like. He certified to Pilate that Jesus was really dead. He didn't just pass out for a little bit and then wander back into town. Verse 46, Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus from the cross He had Jesus' body wrapped and sealed in a tomb. Then two women, verse 47 tell us, saw where Jesus was buried. On Sunday morning, the women go to the tomb. They find the stone rolled away, and they're told by an angel that Jesus has risen. They're astonished. They're afraid to tell anybody at first. But we know they did tell somebody, otherwise we wouldn't be here this morning. Uh, the other gospel accounts tell us that they eventually overcame their fear and they went on to tell the other disciples what had happened. You know, it's, it's interesting here that Mark names these women, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Salome. He names them several times in the text. Verse 47, verse 40, up in verse 1. Why does Mark keep naming these people? You know, Mark, if you read through Mark's gospel, he's he's kind of in the brevity. You, you would think he wouldn't need to keep telling us these people's names over and over. Why does he do this? He's giving you footnotes. He's listing his eyewitnesses. He's saying, look, if you want to go, if you're not sure about what I'm saying here, go ask them. They can tell you what happened. But you need to know that it's interesting that women are listed so prominently here. There was a Greek pagan philosopher, who lived about 80 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he wrote several books and tried to refute the truth of the resurrection. And one of the ways he tried to do this, one of his arguments, was that women were the main witnesses and nobody trusts women. Now, it is true that in that day, women were of such such a low social class that their testimony was actually not admissible in a court of law. But think about that for a minute if you are writing these accounts and you're wanting to make this up and get people to believe you, you're making up a story about the resurrection, would you make one of your primary witnesses women if their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law? No, you wouldn't do that. Well, why would you include them? Why wouldn't you just give this job to a man? The only reason that you would include them as witnesses in that day and time is if they were the witnesses. They were the ones who actually saw this. They were the ones who actually reported this. And then there's the disciples who, if the resurrection didn't happen, they knew the resurrection didn't happen. And they willingly went to their deaths for a story that they just made up. I mean, think about them. They were terrified. Jesus had just denied that he even knew Jesus. He did so vehemently. But then the next thing you know, he's preaching boldly about Jesus. And according to tradition, he was actually crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. They had no reason to make this up. They had nothing to gain by doing that. They had nothing to gain by saying he is risen, but they said it. And they said it loudly and they said it often because he was. What if it's true? What if it's true? Uh, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, this is in verse 6, who is was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You know, if that's fake news, if that's not true, you can go back to your self-centered life, living life on your own terms, pursuing your pleasures, Doing your own thing, but but let's be honest about that. If you're going to do that, you're embracing a meaningless life. Joy doesn't really have have any meaning. Pain doesn't really have any meaning. Love doesn't really have any meaning. Those are just meaningless emotions bouncing around in our meaningless skulls. But if Christ is risen, if Christ is risen, that changes everything. Uh, First of all, what does that mean if Christ is risen? It means that this world is now rich with meaning. Wine matters. Good drink matters. Because it's just a foretaste of what you're going to get to drink in the world to come. Celebration and laughter matters. Because you're practicing for a celebration that you're going to get to be a part of that will never end. Taking care of sick people matters. Because you're giving them a hint of the healing that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Justice matters. Because God is going to set all things right. You know, if you're for justice, and that's something that's important to you, and yet you doubt the resurrection, if you're for justice and you think this world is all that there is, you need to understand that your very worldview takes away any reason at all to work for justice in the first place. Because why should I care if this is all that there is? Why should I care if some people are downtrodden? Why should I care if some people are poor? In the end, it doesn't make any difference. And if it's just survival of the fittest anyway, then man, push them out of the way and give me a little bit more. But if the resurrection happened, Everything changes. Everything matters. N.T. Wright said this, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustice and pains of this present world must be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. Christianity means good news for the whole world. Easter means in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. The world matters. Secondly, if Jesus is risen, it means that you can experience grace. It means that your sins can actually be forgiven. Verse 7, Go tell the disciples and Peter. And I love the fact that, that they add on there and Peter, make sure that even Peter knows about this. The one who denied that he even knew Jesus on the eve of the crucifixion. It's not, go tell those chicken disciples and that denying Peter that I told you so, I told you this is going to happen. No, he says, go tell them he is risen. He is risen. He wants them to know and he wants Peter especially to know that he is risen. I don't know how you may have turned your back on God in your life. I know we all have. I don't know what you've done or thought or said or where you've been, but the resurrection is good news for people who have turned their backs on God. Because the resurrection means that Jesus' crucifixion was not just some random Roman crucifixion with no meaning. The resurrection is proof that God the Father found Jesus' sacrifice acceptable. Uh, Paul, at the end of Romans 4, tells us that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that for them their faith will be counted as righteousness. It's counted for righteousness who, he says, for everyone who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses but raised for our justification God accepted Jesus' payment on the cross as an acceptable payment for sin. The resurrection proves that. The resurrection proves that. How can you experience then the forgiveness and the freedom that comes with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's by believing the story. It's by trusting yourself in Jesus Christ, trusting yourself to Jesus Christ. It's it's, it's turning from your sin and turning from trusting in your own good works and casting yourself upon the risen Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Even if it's just a penny's worth of faith, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. The resurrection means that that you, no matter where you've been and what you've done, you can actually experience the forgiveness of God. And thirdly, the resurrection means you can know freedom. Something changed with those cowardly disciples, didn't it? Something changed with the women who were afraid. One moment, they're afraid, they fear death, and then all of a sudden, it's not a problem anymore. They don't even fear death embracing the resurrection can begin to free you from all of your fears the fear of the awkward the fear of looking silly the fear of failure the fear of suffering why can it free you from all of those fears because it can free you from the greater fear the fear that that is underneath everything else and that's the fear of death It can free you from the fear of death Uh, A few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, it was the Sunday before Easter, Uh, ISIS bombed worship services at churches in Egypt, and over 40 people were killed. And I happened to see an interview after this, it was the interview with the widow of a gatekeeper who had actually stopped a suicide bomber from going into another church and killing people there. He saved many lives. And this widow was being interviewed on Egyptian television. And this is what she said. I am not angry at the one who did this. I am telling him, may God forgive him. You are not in your right mind. My son, believe me, you are not in your right mind. Believe me, I am not angry. He is gone now, dead. And I ask the Lord to forgive them and let them try to think, think, think. Believe me, if they think, they will know that we didn't do anything wrong to them. Think. Is what you're doing, is it right or wrong? May God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, I forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. Believe me, I am proud of him. I wish I was there with him. I thank you. And the guy interviewing her is a Muslim and the guy in the studio, and he's just, he doesn't know quite what to do with this lady. He's just stunned. He's blown away. And then he says this, Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Egyptian Christians for hundreds of years are bearing many atrocities and disasters. The Egyptian Christian deeply loves his country. Egyptian Christians bear everything for the sake of his nation. And oh, how great is the amount of forgiveness you have. If your enemy knew how much forgiveness you have for them, he would not believe it. If it was my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness. This is their faith and religious conviction. May God have mercy on Om He is a hero and a martyr. Well, that's not fear. That's certainly not fear. Where does that come from? the ability to rejoice in the face of death, the ability to forgive the one who took the life of your husband, the ability to leave a Muslim commentator dumbstruck and amazed at what he's just seen. It comes from knowing that Jesus Christ went to the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. It comes from knowing that His mission was a success because He rose from the dead. It comes from knowing that because His stone was rolled away, one day your stone is going to be rolled away as well. I was watching a video this morning. It was an interview a few years ago with Bono, the the lead singer of U2. And he was telling a story. I didn't know this. his, His mom died when he was 14, and she actually died in the middle of her own father's funeral. If you can imagine that. And he said he just... He carried that wound around forever and he came to know Christ but he continued to carry this wound around and then he said one day he visited Jerusalem and he said I went to the place where death died I went to the place where death died so I don't believe in it anymore I went to the place where death died so I don't believe in it anymore and he says a lot of our psychosis is the fear of death but if you have that dealt with if you have that fear of death dealt with you can go on about your life with no fear it changes everything it changes everything Uh, the resurrection means that this world matters it's not meaningless the resurrection means your sins can actually be forgiven no matter what they are the resurrection means you can know freedom from fear and that you can be free to forgive others as well And the resurrection means one more thing, believer in Jesus Christ. It means you have a mission. It means you have a mission to go and tell others that he is risen. Uh, Bono summed this up so well. This is on the front of your bulletin in the song, Window in the Skies by U2. The rule has been disproved. The stone, it has been moved. The grave is now a groove. All debts are removed. Oh, can't you see what love has done? Oh, can't you see what love has done? Oh, can't you see what love has done? What it's doing to me. That's the good news that you have to go and take to others. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise on this Easter Sunday that this world is not meaningless, that it is not vanity. We give you praise that our sins can be forgiven. We give you praise that we no longer have to fear death, that we can live life. We give you praise that we are now free to forgive. Lord God, thank you for all of these things. Uh, Even now, Father... Give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.